0: Welcome to Radio Rehab, and Happy New Year. If you wonder where we've been, well, there's an episode explaining that. I believe it's the last episode. If you want to know what the rest of our episodes sound like, well, there's about 200 of them, in the can, so check those out. We are a recovery podcast. I'm a recovering addict and an alcoholic. I'm Dana, hi. And this is the first of our 2020 episodes. I am so honored to kick this season off with my dear friend Max, I'm so lucky to call her a friend now. The first time I heard her speak at a meeting, I was like, I need to know that woman. Like, I, I need what she's got in her head. I want to be like her. And her story is just so inspirational and amazing that I'm, I can't even tell you how honored I am to share this with you guys. She's helped me so much just by existing. And her story is, it's so great, and she's so forthcoming she doesn't hold anything back. She's just here to help. You know, she she is the 12th step. She's here to help us all, and it is my great honor to present to you guys the marvelous Max. Welcome to Radio Rehab. Here's your host, Dana Keys. Thank you so much for being on Radio Rehab, Max.
1: Very welcome. Glad to be here.
0: Well, let's start off by um, sharing your story with everybody. Okay, which I've, I've had the honor of hearing, and it oh. really impacted me. So,
1: oh, well, yeah, thank you. And I've heard your story, and it—I felt the same way. Oh, it's thank like, you. You know, I mean, I feel like, I mean, we're survivors, right? Yeah. And to even be here today, to be able to share the story with humor and and joy is it's unbelievable because, you know, I came into sobriety um, very much a victim. You know, I had a lot of baggage and a lot of pain, and I thought everything was there to everything hurt me. So it's taken a long time to really untangle all that and really look at my part in it and really live in a place of gratitude and true joy. So where I came from, my sobriety date is February 5th, 1987. So I'm 58 years old, which means I've been sober more than half my life, which is unbelievable to me. That is. It's
0: unbelievable. I mean, I, I'm, I'm actually often surprised. <laughs> you know, really? Like, it's funny because to me it sounds amazing, but I always think like to you, you're like, yeah, whatever. No. It's, <laughs> so it's amazing that you do. It's amazing <laughs> okay. to me. It's the thing, of all the
1: things that I do in life, it's the most, it's the, the thing I, I covet the most is my sobriety. And thank God it's been consistent Uh um, sobriety because when I got sober in the Midwest, I'm from St. Louis, I had a really old school sponsor and I mean, she was black belt and she was the kind of sponsor where I think she lost her driver's license years before she even got sober, but she kept her car. Uh And when she had sponsees, we were called pigeons, which is an old school name for sponsees and pigeons were, like little birds that would just follow your sponsor around, right? Oh, that's so cute. We did whatever she told us. Well, she had this big-ass Lincoln town car, and she didn't have a driver's license, but she made us drive her around. And I could barely see over the steering wheel. So she always had a pillow and a phone book on the front seat so us shorties could sit and... And drive around, and she would just sit in the back seat and smoke cigarettes and then tell us where to go and tell us what we're doing, and we're bringing a meeting to the halfway house today. Oh, my God. We just didn't ask questions. We just did whatever she said, because I couldn't think my way out of a box. Yeah. So she kind of had a rule. She said, you know, I'm not going to work with you if you relapse, because she didn't have relapse in her story, and she was real hardcore. Wow. And if you relapse, she said, if you relapse, you're going to have to work with Linda, the loser sponsor. And I'm like, fuck, I don't want to work with Linda. (laughs) That's the last thing I want to do is work with Linda, the loser sponsor. So that kept me sober for about a year is the fear of working with Linda, the loser
0: sponsor. Oh, my God. That is amazing. It was amazing. So, you know,
1: I was 25 years old when I got sober and I had zero life skills at all. And the way I got into sobriety is I had been in therapy for about two years before I got sober and I was dealing with like sexual abuse issues and I was having flashbacks and my life was a complete mess. I couldn't keep a job if my life depended on it. I wound up doing a ton of geographics, one of which put me in Dallas, um, I think at 85 and I was living in my car um, and had no clue how, how to get there or how to get home. And my dad and mom had no idea where I was. So out of desperation and a moment of clarity, and this was in 85 and I got sober in 87, I called my dad out of desperation and said, can you come get me? And um, he flew down to Dallas and found me in a parking lot in a, in a gas station and living in my car with my cat in the backseat with a litter box on the floorboard. And he drove me home and didn't ask anything. He didn't pry. He didn't say, I told you so. He, he just drove, we drove home in silence and I knew I needed to get into therapy. And that's all I said to him is I need help. Um, He didn't really know what to do, but I just kind of had enough background because I went to college and I knew that I knew about therapy. So I went into therapy and about a year and a half into it, my therapist finally said, now we need to talk about your alcohol and drug abuse. And I had never really talked about that to her. And I'm like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I had, never, I had never heard of AA. I had never heard of alcoholism. Neither of my parents were alcoholic. They were all kinds of messed up other things. But there was no drinking in my family, per se. There was a bunch of dysfunction, but no drinking. And I was in radical denial. I had no clue. So that was in like October of 86. And she gave me an ultimatum. And said, if you don't get sober, I can't help you anymore. And that terrified me because that was my lifeline to sanity. And if she cut me off, I didn't know where else I was going to go. So I spun around for a couple of months and did massive denial. I tried a meeting, and I thought it was just a bunch of old cranky guys talking about God. And I thought, this is not yeah. <laughs> This is not what yeah. I want to do here. And I... Um, That was October. I got sober in February. So it was I'm the I'm at the beginning phases of my horrific alcoholic bottom memories, you know, around Christmas. It was a horrible Christmas. It was a horrible New Year's. You know, again, after they kind of plant that seed of rehab and recovery, it just ruins everything. Uh You know, I, I, I just, you know, it had never occurred to me that I had a problem with alcohol or drugs. Didn't, I never heard, I never thought about it. I just thought this was my my trusted companion. Right. And all the trouble that I was getting into was just
0: trouble. Yeah. You know. Me too. I was like I always just felt like I was just a victim of so many things. Right. All all of this, uh, right. you know. That's right. I forget and there's like a Yiddish term for it too. It's like surus. the shlemazel. Oh yeah. The, way the bad stuff always yeah. happens. To well, yeah. You. Well yeah. no, it's
1: soros. I ha- you'll have trouble. You'll always have sores, you'll always have trouble. Yes, yes, sores. Yes, sores, sores, yes. you'll always have trouble. So, when I, when I did my first fifth step, our first fourth step, I checked myself into rehab. Um, I did 30 days inpatient, I did 10 months outpatient, and I did 14 months aftercare. So, my first fourth step in rehab was they asked me, Do you have a preference? For clergy, we have a a priest, we have a minister. I said, do you have a rabbi? And like, (laughs) we do, we have a rabbi. So I met Rabbi Goodman and I did my first fifth step with him and it was just victim, victim, victim. This happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me. Now I was 30 days sober when I did my first fourth step, right? I mean, that was part of moving into outpatient. So I really had no clue about taking responsibility and resentments and what's my part in it. But I think the first 30 days was just a way to get oriented to the language and the mechanics of the steps and the hierarchy of the steps. And the fifth step was a way for me for the first time to tell somebody everything besides a therapist. Right. You know, and I had never done that before. You know, again, this was the second person on earth that I trusted. You know, the first being the therapist. Right. So from there, I mean, I was completely unemployable. Um, so even though I had a college degree and I thought I was all that, I couldn't hold a job. Even after recovery, it was like when, when I got sober, even the smallest decisions were monumental. I mean, I, it was like I was conscious for the first time and I didn't know if I was making the right or the wrong decision. It was really confusing. So the best job I could take was at a grocery store. Uh So I became a checker and a bagger at a grocery store for about six to nine months after I got sober. Best job for me because it taught me to show up on time, which I never did. It taught me how to, again, be a worker among workers, which I didn't know what that even meant because I thought I knew everything Uh and I was all that. And it, it really taught me discipline and structure, which I had none of. So I had to start losing my ego, you know, and I'm, that's what I've learned. If I've learned anything between that point in time and where I am at 32 years of sobriety, for me, recovery is all about step six and seven. My character defects blow me up all the time still. And I have to crawl my way from step six to step seven every day to find the humility to say, this doesn't work for me anymore. What are you doing? So again, I mean, I kind of have one, two, three down, Uh right? Most of the time, but I'm really sedentary on step six and seven, you know, for the last five to 10 years, because again, that's the stuff that's kind of ingrained in me that is not impossible to let go of, but it's, it's, some of this stuff is just like, Oh, it's this again.
0: Like oh, a character
1: defect. Character defects.
0: And, like, what do you do? What, like, what's your solution when, you, when you're still acting on the same character defects? Because I found, like, jealousy is really, really coming back up for me. Yeah. Like, just, yeah, I felt a lot of it this year.
1: Well, the awareness, right? I mean, being clueless about uh, character defects. Like, mine, for example, come out in force at work. You know, I get my ego all mixed up in stuff, and I think I'm all that. So, I I get... I get in trouble. You know, I mean, I I I am working in a a group of people that are really humble, decent, good people. And there's no room for uh, arrogance and star players. And and I I now know how to how to be more empathic and read people Uh as opposed to just running people over. So I can tell now that I'm being really hyper focused on me when I say things like I want or I need instead of we, you know, so I I try to integrate the program, the principles of the program in everything I do, the principle of saying we, you know, and and I have to be conscious of that. That isn't always natural because my ego can get monumental and out of control. Mm -hmm. And I don't like how that feels anymore. It doesn't feel good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, you know, where I am right now, I mean, I've had... I've had a really it's been a wild ride. It hasn't always been easy. You know, sobriety is is hard and easy at the same time. I mean, it's to me, you know, having to look at myself every day and do an inventory. I mean, who wants to do that? I know. Right? Every single day to do a, a gratitude list. Every single day to to kind of look at where am I on the on the steps? I mean, sometimes it gets kind of tiring. But if I go off the beam and stop paying attention to that, I'll feel it. Uh-huh. You know, something will feel wrong, and I and I won't feel centered and grounded. Um, and I'll start tapping back into: I'm lonely, I'm angry, maybe food, maybe shopping. It's it's going to be something else. People, to fill places, the hole. In, yeah. yeah. So I wonder these days if if drugs and alcohol or addiction isn't just a symptom of loneliness. I wonder because, you know, I use tremendously out of fear and loneliness, you know, and in recovery, the the brilliance of of AA is it kind of has those those tools built in to combat that stuff. For example, a sponsor, right? It's the first human relationship besides clergy, besides a rabbi or besides a therapist, someone who I'm not paying, Uh (laughs) who I actually learn how to trust. Right. And who I develop an intimate relationship with and, I, and maintain boundaries like there's no funny business there if it's done right. Yeah. We're really clear that we're just talking about the steps. So it's the first time that a normal human being, another addict, alcoholic, learns everything about me and tries not to be judgmental. And I don't try to push them away out of fear of being judged. So it's brilliant. I think mm-hmm. the program's brilliant. The whole concept of sponsoring, the whole concept of having a meeting, being able to go to meetings and being, being with people to combat isolation, right? I can go to a meeting anytime, thank goodness, in San Francisco, yeah. anytime I need. Because, again, this is a disease of loneliness and isolation. So the program has those steps and has those tools kind of built in to combat that. I mean I I I've, I feel like the it's just brilliant. You know how this intuitively this 80-year-old program when they didn't even have the tools of psychology like they do now mm-hmm. kind of has this stuff kind of built into it to to help us survive.
0: Yeah. You know. And for me for me with the whole sponsorship thing is that's that's my That's what's helped me is sponsoring somebody else, mainly Mm -hmm. because, like, my my relationship with my sponsor, she was the first person who I let tell me. Like, my mom used to call it... You know, for she would try to critique me on something. I would go ballistic, yeah. even though she was right. Right. Like, but I learned how to take that from yeah. my sponsor that's that right. I was doing this and I'm that's dishonest. That's and, right. But like, for me, I feel like my drinking and using was just, I just didn't want to be me. I just didn't want to be no. in my skin. Right. I hated it. Right. So it's like, when I feel like that now, like the only way I can get out of it is if I'm listening to somebody else's problems. Well, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> yeah. that's
1: that's the beauty of meetings, right? <laughs> yeah. Is like, and I get to identify. I mean, the first meeting I went to, it was in February. And in where I went to um, meetings in St. Louis, we did a meeting based on the month. So it was February. So we did the second. We were on the second oh, step. Right, yeah. So this lady was talking about this craziness that she was thinking. I mean, she said all this stuff out loud that I w- would think about constantly, but wouldn't dare say out loud. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, if I said that stuff, I'd be, I'd be terrified they'd lock me up. They'd 5150 me. Right. But she laughed about her stories. She talked about her husband dropping dead in the shower. I mean, she talked about using. She talked about, and it was with, again, humor, because what I learned is time plus tragedy equals comedy. Yeah. Right?
0: All the best comedians right. like
1: Richard Pryor. Right. Like,
0: oh, my God, I grew up in a, in a, in a brothel. That's like, right. <laughs> that's like, right. Uh, and I, I mean, to me,
1: thank God, I've always had a, a sense of humor. Otherwise, I mean, this stuff would kill me.
0: Oh, my God. Because yeah. it's
1: It's just too hard and it's too tragic. So I've learned that not to make light of the stories, not to make light of the pain, but. I've got to get to the point where I can at least look back and laugh at it. Then I know I'm healing from Uh whatever it is, whatever pain I'm feeling. If I can at least get to a point where not to laugh at at terrible sores, terrible pain, but to be able to like not let it stab me in the heart every time I think about it. I mean, like PTSD, you know, the trauma, you know, I've got to move beyond it. And for some things it's taken me decades you know to move beyond. For example, when I was 5 years sober, I was doing service and I was walking a gal's dog. She was coming back from the hospital and I was stocking her fridge and walking her dog, which is what we did. You know, back then it was the 80s and people were sick a lot and I oh, tripped yeah. up over the leash and I fell and I broke my leg so badly that it, there was a it wouldn't heal. It was like a spiral non-union tib-fib fracture. It was the craziest thing. And they were talking about amputating the leg because it would not heal. And again, I was five years sober. So if we do the math, what they say is you, you emotionally stop growing when you start using. Right, arrested development. Arrested yeah. development. So I started, technically, they put me on Ritalin when I was eight. So I kind of count that as my beginning date. Wow, right?
0: yeah. So if
1: I'm eight when I started using, and here I am five years sober... I'm really emotionally 13 when this is happening, even though I'm 30 years old chronologically. Well, I went into the whole spiral of why me? I was doing service. God is punishing me. Why did God hurt me? Why, did, why is my, le-? it was so, I was in a wheelchair for six months, crutches for two years, multiple surgeries. It was like insane. And I just couldn't stop asking why me, why me? And I went to therapy. We did PTSD. Um, and finally, it just clicked. Someone said, probably a therapist said, why not you? It's just bad luck. You're not being punished. And I, I was finally at a place where I was ready to hear that. But before that, I, I got into dark depression because, again, my, I had just finished graduate school. I was five years sober. Um, I, was, I was doing really, really well. I'm about to start a job teaching at a university in St. Louis, my dream job. And I fell and wound up literally handicapped. I uh-huh. had never been disabled like that before. So I spun, you know, again, as a 13 year old kid uh-huh. with no spiritual tools d- would do, I just spun into God punished me, you know, and I didn't understand that. So it took me years to kind of dissect that and to really understand life on life's terms and. Seconds and inches, things can change. So, I was in an incredibly dark depression for years because of that. Because I I was laid up for about three or four years literally, I couldn't drive, I couldn't walk. Um, you know, it got old as far as being drugged, taken to meetings, and drugged to meetings all the time. So, people stopped calling after a certain period of time. But my dad stuck around, you know, and that experience, the biggest gift out of that whole mess was the relationship that I formed with my dad as an adult. He picked me up. He took me to classes. He took me to doctors. I was in a cast up to my hip, so he laid me across the seat in the back. We talked about politics. We talked about books. We talked about sports. I don't even like sports, <laughs> but you know, but I got to know this guy as an adult for the first time in my life. We spent almost every day together. That was the biggest gift of that whole experience. So I learned that out of tragedy, again, how our experience can benefit others. And what shifted for me is I then became much more sensitive to doing work for special needs kids. So later on in life, after I moved out here and after the dot-com thing blew up, I took a job as a teacher at a special needs school And I try to do service work. I work um, as a volunteer for an equine therapy ranch up in Petaluma um, and special needs kids. And if that accident hadn't happened, that wouldn't have been on my radar at all. So I really liken that to the promises, like we will not regret the past and how how our experience can benefit others. But when you're in the middle of it, man, it's dark. Oh, my God. It's terribly dark and it's terribly painful. And like I said, it took me years to understand I'm not being punished. Um, I didn't do anything wrong. Bad things just kind of happen sometimes. I didn't drink over it, but my depression kicked in really heavily.
0: Thanks again to Max for being on the show. She will be here all week if you would like to contact us. The phone number is 415-496-9511. You can call or text, even when we're not in studio. The email is radiorehab at gotoproductions.com. That's G-O-T-O productions.com. On Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and all the socials, it's at Dana. If you like what you heard, like us, subscribe, rate, share, tell a friend spread the word. Tune in tomorrow for more conversation with Max when we talk about depression. Keep coming back.